We've seen those images. And the question that keeps on making, or keeps on coming up to my mind is, what do you do in the eye of the storm? What do you do in the eye of the storm? How do you keep on hanging on when you're in the middle of it all? Well, in Texas, i got to tell you, we have similar devastations that hit us too. I live in Ennis, Texas. I know, you've never heard of Ennis, Texas. I grew up in Overton, which is the grease spot on the map of Texas. Ennis is a little bigger than the grease spot, okay? But we're right on Interstate 45, south of the Dallas Metroplex, that goes straight down to Houston, Texas. We are the corridor. I was a preacher there for 12 years. And when hurricanes hit, whether it be Hurricane Rita, this last flooding that took place, whether it be Hurricane Katrina, what happens to I-45? All lanes of I-45 suddenly shift to go north. It is no southbound traffic on I-45. It's closed down to where all lanes go up to north. We are about one of the first cities that you can finally get away from the aftermath. So as a result, our congregation, which has a family life center, ends up being a a shelter for people, whether it's through ice storms, whether it's through aftermath of hurricane, no matter what the natural disaster is, if it hits the coast, people come up here. I I ended up having to get a uh, a management um, certification for uh, emergency shelters with the Red Cross. It it had gotten that way so, so much so that we'd taken care of so many people, and you look at that, and I've never gone through the, the eye of the storm. I've never gone through the actual storm myself, but I've seen it in the eyes of people as they've come to our building as we took care of them, and it, the question keeps on haunting me, what do you do in the eye of the storm to hang on? How do you keep on hanging on? Well, in the Bible, when you take a look at storms, they're always equated Sea and storms are always equated with the forces of chaos that seek to undo God's good creation. Every time you see something about the sea, something about uh, the, the forces, it's always got to do with the sea and with chaos that threatens to undo God's good creation. In fact, there's a rather interesting verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 21, Uh, You may have scratched your head at it. I know I have many times when I first started reading that. It's, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Huh? What's that about? I mean, no longer any sea. Boy, deep sea fishermen are not going to enjoy the new heaven and new earth. I mean, you know? I mean, come on, what is this about? I I mean, that's where you go on ocean cruises. Uh, You know, that's the great place. The sea's wonderful. No. You see, the sea represents the destructive forces of chaos. And when God makes everything right, when he puts it all back together again the way it's supposed to be, the destructive forces represented by the sea will be no more. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more destruction. It's all going to be done away with. Now, there are two specific stories that are retold in the gospel narratives. Two specific stories about the calming of the sea by Jesus. You remember those stories? One of the stories is told in the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And another story is told in all four gospels, synoptics and the gospel of John. We're going to take a look at both of them just briefly. I'm going to tell you the story, and you can look them up on your own, all right? 
But you know the stories. If you've ever grown up reading these in the Bible, you know the stories. The first one is found in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, it's a rather interesting little story about Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, you ever notice he's always doing that a lot? Getting in a boat, crossing the Sea of Galilee? I think he likes the ride. Honestly, I do. I think because he's, he's so wrapped up teaching and healing and all that, that sometimes he needs the rest. And so the boat ride is a way to rest. And he's doing this in this particular story. He falls asleep in the stern of the ship. That's the back for you landlubbers. Uh, yeah, he's sleeping in the stern of the ship, and a furious squall comes up, translate storm. A furious storm comes up, and that's the Sea of Galilee was given to that sort of thing because of its configuration. So here they are in the middle of the sea. They are being swamped, going back and forth. As Psalm 107 says, talking about a similar situation, they staggered like drunken men. Here they are going up into heavens, down to the depths, and they're screaming, Jesus is still asleep. How do you do that in a storm like that? And they're screaming at him. They're saying, Jesus, Lord, Master, don't you care we're drowning? Now, one thing they are not asking him. I know this is the case. They're not asking him this. They're not saying, Jesus, Lord of the universe, would you please stand up in the middle of the boat and say to the sea, shut up, be calm. That is not in their frame of reference, folks. They have no idea. No, what they're saying to Jesus is, it's all hands on deck time, guy. You're in the back of the boat. You're asleep. We need everyone. Grab a rope. Get a bucket. Don't you care? We're all going to go down. Jesus gets up, and he says, quiet, still. The old King James, peace be still, as the song, peace be still. And the storm completely dies down. Now, interesting reaction. Of course, he also says to him, says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And by the way, I don't think he's scolding them. Because he understands this isn't their, in their experience, okay? But here's an interesting reaction. Ever read Psalm 107? I mentioned that just a second ago. Psalm 107 is a very interesting psalm. It's a psalm that depicts various scenarios. And it says, you know, give thanks to God. You know, he delivers his people from, from their situation. He gives several scenarios. How some people wander in the wilderness and they cry out to God and God delivers them. Some people find themselves in prison. They cry out to God and God delivers them. Some people, because of their own wickedness, find themselves in difficult troubles. They cry out to God and God delivers them. One of the scenes in chapter, uh, one, or not chapter, in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32 is, the merchants go out to sea. And God stirs up the waters, and it forms this gigantic storm, and the boat is lifted up to the sky, and it drops down to the depths, and they stagger like drunken men, and they cry out to the Lord in their distress. He hears their cry, and he stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Same exact wording, by the way. And then it says, they were glad. And they made their way to a safe harbor, and they praised God. Now, juxtaposition that with this story. Their disciples' reaction. They are not glad. He calms the seas. 
He uses the same phraseology of Psalm 107. And it says, they're scared. And they say, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him? Now I want you to get this. These guys know Psalm 107. All right? They know Psalm 107. The Psalms were their song book. The Psalms were their prayer book. They would have memorized these Psalms. Okay? Now, I love the way the, the Greek has it. Now, I know enough of Greek to get myself really in trouble, okay? So I don't generally go throwing it out, but this is an interesting thing in the Greek. The word scared or frightened is actually two words, and it's actually the same word repeated twice. It's the word we get our word phobia from, okay? So to kind of put it in, in, in our letters, it would be they were phobically phobic. Or they were phobically phobicized. I mean, I don't know if, you could, if that's a word or not. I, some version says they were terrified. But notice they weren't terrified by the storm. They were terrified at the man who stilled the storm. And the question that is going around that they verbalize is, who is this that even... The winds and the waves obey him. They know Psalm 107. And they know that the person who storms the seas, or who calms the seas, who make them still and make them hushed, is Yahweh God. This is something man doesn't do. This is something that God does. This is his realm. And so now they have just encountered something that they can't get their minds around. And there's not a point of reference for them to grab. When they think Messiah, they're not thinking God in the flesh. They're thinking king of David. You know, they're thinking like David coming in and starting a kingdom. But this moves it to a whole different level for them. And if this is what they might suspect that it is, their world has just been changed. Radically, never to be the same again. Next story. This one is in all four Gospels. And it happens in the same place in all four Gospels, basically. And that is, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000, sends, well, sends the disciples away in the boat, and disperses the crowd. And Mark words it very interestingly. He says he, he made them get in the boat. Uh, it's very forceful words there. And when you read John chapter 6, you understand why he made them get in the boat, because the crowd tried to make them king by force. And who do you think got the crowd there? Yeah. So he gets the ringleaders out of the way. Y'all get in the boat and get out of here. And then he disperses the crowd. And what he does while they're out on the lake is he goes up into the mountains and he starts praying. Just been a very tempting moment for him. He's praying to God. A storm develops at sea. He walks across the sea. Now we read that as if like, oh, he walked across the sea. He walks across the sea, guys. Can you imagine that? I can't. I I try. I can't imagine it. This man gets on the water, walking across the water. The disciples can't imagine it either, by the by. They're sitting in their boat. They're straining at the oars. The wind is against them. The seas are going up and down again. And they look and they see this human-like 
figure walking toward them on the lake. And you know what they're not thinking? They're not thinking, oh, that's Jesus coming to help us. No, they're thinking it's a phantom, it's a ghost, and that's not a good thing. Because if you're on the sea, you're in danger, you see what you think is a ghost, you think, okay, we're going to end up being like this guy, right? We're going down. And they cry out in fear. And Jesus calls out, the one thing you always want to hear when you encounter something supernatural are these words, do not be afraid, right? He says, don't be afraid, it is I. And then Peter says something that just, I don't know. I, try, I tried to do the background stuff. I tried to do the study and really get into the text and, and try to look at first century stuff and all that. And I, it still doesn't make sense to me. I don't care how much background I get. I don't get Peter's response. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, got a surefire way to tell. Bid me come out to you on the water. Now, I almost imagine that as he's saying that, he's going, oh, I wish I could get those words back. You know? That is not a good way of making sure that this is Jesus. You know? I mean, if I were there, my thoughts would be, okay, if it's you, Jesus, what did we just have for lunch? I mean, that would work, right? That would identify him. Or if it's you, Jesus, who are the 12 guys in the boat? All right? You select it. That would make sense. But me get out in a stormy water out of a floating vehicle into the storm and try to walk to you on water, how does that make sense? It doesn't, all right? But he does. Jesus says, come on. He gets out of the water, and he begins to walk on the water. Now, I'm going to give you my Daryl Willis speculation, all right? This is just pure. It's not in the Bible, okay? But I can imagine there's a little internal dialogue going on in Peter's mind here. He's going out in and he says to himself, Self, what are you doing? I'm walking on water. Very good, Self. Self, what is your name? Simon. Yeah, I know your name is Simon. What is your nickname that Jesus gave you? Oh, that's easy. It's Petros, Peter. What does that name mean? Oh, well, that means rock. What do rocks do in water? Help. I, I don't know that that's what he was thinking, but I do know this. He quit looking at Jesus, and he started looking at the waves. And that's where he ran into trouble. And he began to sink. Jesus reaches down. He screams out, save me, Master. Jesus reaches down, picks him up, and again he says, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And again, I don't think he's reaming him out. I don't think he's chastising him. Because again, this is not within their frame of reference. I think he's chuckling as he says it. Daryl Willis' interpretation, okay. And he puts him back to the boat. In the eye of the storm, what do you do to hang on? All kinds of storms out there. There's more than one kind of storm. What do you do when the diagnosis is the worst-case scenario? What do you do when you're at the bedside of that person that you love very, very much? And they're slipping away, and you've already been told, it's just a matter of time. It's not if, 
it's wind. And the storm is right there for you. What do you do when the divorce papers are served? What do you do when that job goes away and you've been out of a job for six months and all of your extra expense funds that you had, your emergency fund is gone and you have nothing and you don't know where you're going to go after this? What do you do when the storm hits? What do you do in the eye of the storm? I'm going to show you just a brief video right now about some friends of EEM that went through this kind of storm. Go ahead, show that. What do you do when those are your life situations? Dasha is a dear friend of mine. Her little girl is a doll. You ever been a single mom with a little child, preschool age, and a bomb is blowing up outside your house? Ended up becoming a refugee for over a year. All of our staff in Ukraine became refugees because our offices were in Donetsk. What do you do in the eye of the storm? Let me tell you about Irfan. Irfan and his friends. Irfan was one of those Muslims that was converted to Christianity in Athens at the Glafada Church of Christ. He and his friends were walking down Athens one night and they were followed in a dark alley by a group of radical Islamists who had found out that they had become Christians 
and they pulled out their weapons and they said, either deny Jesus or face the consequences. We will kill you. And Irfan replied, a lot of things may happen right now, but one thing's not going to happen. We're not going to deny Jesus. They jumped on him. Irfan was a budding professional soccer player. He will never play soccer again. I don't know how many times he was stabbed and left for dead. He was in the hospital. His liver was lacerated, lung damaged, kidney. I believe they removed his spleen. After he got out of the hospital, this was last fall, a year ago. After he got out of the hospital in December, early December, he shows up with his friends at the church and he says, get them all together, get everyone together, we need to do something. They all gathered together and said, brothers and sisters, we got to pray. They did not pray for deliverance. They did not pray to avoid persecution. They said, Lord, brothers and sisters, we got to pray for those poor men who attacked us. That God will rescue them from their hatred and that God will give us strength that if the opportunity shows itself, if we confront them again, that we will have the courage to tell them the message of Jesus. What do you do in the eye of the storm? How do you hang on? Uh, let me tell you about my friend. Some of you already heard about Igor Kozlovsky. Igor Kozlovsky in Donetsk, he was a, a, minister of a minister of religion for a long time. He helped get Churches of Christ recognized as legitimate church. Some of you saw some of his story on the video we showed this morning there about how he was kidnapped by the Russian separatists, tortured for two years, and finally released through some a lot of negotiation going on, finally released. We asked him, I got to visit with him in June, the first week of June. We asked him, what kept you going? How did you hold on in the eye of the storm? He said, three things kept me going. And I believe you can boil them down into one, okay? But the three things he said that kept me going, one, I knew I was loved. Love kept me going. He said, no matter what lies they told me, no matter how many times they beat me, no matter what they said about me, I kept saying to myself, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. And these are lies, but he speaks the truth. He loves me. The second thing was responsibility. I knew I had a responsibility to love in return. That even my captors were in darkness and they needed the love of God and I was to love them back. Because eventually they may find themselves in the cell next to mine. Because the way the tides turn in that, kind of, that whole conflict. And they need love too. And that responsibility to also bear witness. I was not afraid to die, he said, but I knew I had to live because someone had to tell the story. And finally, prayer. He said, prayer. People would say to me, how can you smile? You've just been beaten. He said, ah, I have a place I can go to that they can't take away from me. I go to and I can look straight into my father's eyes and I can tell him I love him and I can talk with him at any moment, any time in the day, no matter what they do to me, they can't take that away from me. Let me boil that down into one phrase. Keep your eyes on God. Keep your focus on Jesus. That is what Peter failed to do in the storm. That's what the disciples were afraid to do. It's what the Hebrew writer tells us to do. In Hebrews chapter 12, after that great chapter 11, talking about the Hebrew hall of faith, 
And he talks, he ends it up talking about some people wandered in the wilderness, some people were sawn in two. Some people were destitute. The world was not worthy of them. They didn't receive the promises yet. And yet they kept on going. And the Hebrew writer says, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the trailblazer. That's what that word pioneer means. The trailblazer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he ended up sitting down at the right-hand side of God. Did you get that? Even Jesus took his focus off the storm and put it someplace else. On the God of the storm. One of the primary ways to focus on the Lord of the storm is to engage in the Word. Because in the middle of your storms, the Word of God gives you context for your storm. It helps you recognize what you're going through. It helps you realize who's ultimately in charge. And it keeps you going no matter what. By engaging in the Word, we know who the Lord of the storm is. And how do we know that without the Word of God? This is how we come to know Him. This is why we are so passionate at EEM to do this sort of thing, to get Bibles into the hands of people who may not have Bibles, to give them context, to introduce them to the Lord of the storm, to introduce them to the one who can give them help, the one who can give them hope, the one who can make things hang together to introduce them to Jesus, the trailblazer. And what's a trailblazer? Someone who's gone ahead of you and cut the trail that you can follow. We're not following someone that's not gone through the storm. We're following someone who went right through the storm. What do you do in the eye of the storm? You keep your eye on the Lord of the storm. Pragmatically, you do that by reading and reflecting on the message of the Bible on a regular basis. Not just, as we had a conversation at the, at the beginning of the service, not just to memorize facts, not just to, to learn. The, the Bible points us to someone. The Bible is not the end. The God who inspired it is the end. And if this doesn't lead me to fall in love with him, I'm reading it wrong. If it doesn't lead me to embrace the one who authored it, I'm not reading it right. And so we read it on a regular basis. We read the stories, we contemplate the stories, we tell and we share the stories over and over again. What do you do in the eye of the storm? You keep your eyes on the Lord of the storm. And there is no guarantee, though. There is no guarantee that everything will go back the way it was just because you do that. And don't let me ever give you that impression. All right? No guarantee that you will not be scarred. In fact, the likelihood is that you will be. The storm for Jesus was a cross. And even Jesus, after his resurrection, still bore scars. It will change you. There's no question about it but it doesn't have to destroy you 
and destroy your spirit and destroy your determination. Jesus died. He wasn't spared the cross. He went through it, though, because he believed that God was going to bring redemption out of it. He believed that God would ultimately reverse the verdict, and that is what taken place at the resurrection. And that's our hope today. Resurrection. An end to death. And when I say resurrection, I mean literal bodily resurrection. God will defeat death. Never to die again. God will eventually set things to rights. Righteousness will reign. Justice and peace will come together and kiss. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth passed away and there will be no more sea. So, may you, when you find yourself in the eye of the storm, keep your eyes on the Lord of the storm. May you keep your focus on Him through your regular study and reading of the Word and active engagement in prayer. May you see His love clearly. May you put your trust in Him and never give up. Even when all looks hopeless and you feel helpless, may you hang on to Him no matter what. May you keep your eye on the Lord of the storm. Will you pray with me, please? Gracious Lord, King of the universe, God our Father, Master of the storm, I don't know what weather is brewing in the lives of individuals in this building right now. I don't even pretend to know. You know, and they know. But all I know is that no matter what the storms are, that you are there and you're willing to embrace us and hold us through it. No matter what hits us, no matter how hard it hits, help us never lose our sight from you. Help us hang on to you with everything we got. Thank you for this body of believers. I pray your great blessings on them. I thank you for their partnership with us, and I just praise you for them. Bless them and care for them. It's in your son's name we all pray, and everyone says amen. I, in most churches, there's always an opportunity following the lesson to give people a chance to request prayers from the church body. Maybe you're having struggles and you would like someone to pray for you and like the church body itself to pray for you. Maybe you have something you'd like to bring before the congregation at this time. Whatever your need is, why don't you take care of that? Come on front as together we stand and sing.